but yeah. So why'd you get into archaeology? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I've been doing archaeology for 23 years. Uh, my field school was in 1994. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so it was only like a year or two before that where um, I actually uh, switched majors. Um, I started out as a music major as an undergrad and ended up uh, doing anthropology. Yeah. Um, and I think... Uh, like if you if you think back long, you know far enough to like those formative years, um, it probably was uh, when I was young, like ten. We had a family vacation to the to the southwest, and, yeah, like Mesa Verde and, and all that stuff. <clears throat> um, and and that was the same year that um, Temple of Doom came out, <laughs> and and so we saw that like on the vacation, right? Yeah. So it was like you know kind of a um, critical mass of archaeological exposure or yeah. something like that and I was kind of interested in that um, and didn't really do it with anything and then ended up taking like an anthropology class as my uh, as my uh, social science elective uh, as an undergrad nice. and going like oh yeah I kind of like anthropology uh, and, and started dealing with anthropology and as far as archaeology over like the other anthropological subfields I honestly don't remember, um, but you know, it might have been the historical aspect. Yeah. So that's the best answer I can come up with. So you've been in it long enough that you've probably had ample opportunities to leave it. What made you stay? I don't know that I've had opportunities to leave. You know, it's not like it just were, always worked for you. Yeah, like well, I mean, that's awesome. And, and I think I, that's I mean, cause, an even better answer because we have that like, you know, Wu Wei go with the flow sort of. You know, that, that's how people's lives work, right? Like, yeah, you're doing one thing and the next thing comes up, and you do the next thing and the next thing comes up, and you do the next thing. And I mean, the only time I ever really had to work at it, at getting that next thing, was when I moved up here uh, to Canada. Yeah. Um, but even that, like, I already knew a couple people, and, you know, so, like, the whole, like, archaeological network did its job and yeah. opened a couple doors, and I'm still there. That's you awesome. Know, like, forever long. But, um, you know, whereas, like, other jobs in other fields, I mean, those doors aren't, if they're there, I'd have to, like, build them myself. Yeah. Right? Um, they're not... You know, other doors aren't necessarily opening up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, following the one path and, and, you know, my level of experience and stuff yeah. keeps things open when, um, you know, like the job market's tight or whatever. That so um, I think I think the answer to your question is inertia. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This episode is a little late coming out since I was pretty swamped with the annual Chalk Mool conference in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I had a great time there making some new friends and connecting with old ones, and I got some special interviews there that I'll have as goodies in coming episodes. 
Before I get started, here's a quick reminder to go rate Go Dig a Hole podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to it. It helps the show get recommended to listeners looking for a show like this. Also, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, send me a line if you have research, comments, or questions you'd like to share on the show. I'm always on the hunt for guests to join me at the studio. You can find me just about anywhere online as Go Dig a Hole, or contact me through the blog at godigahole.com. So, for today's show, Daniel Kwan is back for the second part of a collaborative series exploring archaeology and pop culture. To check out our discussion of archaeology and film, listen to episode 30 of the Curiosity and Focus podcast. On this episode, we talk about archaeology in TV, games, and music. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, I saw your uh, reflection post on uh, on Patreon, and, and uh, re- oh, yeah. really enjoyed reading that. Yeah, I just like you know, I I kind of was like thinking, and I was like, oh, you know what? I'll I'll write this, and then, because uh, it's true. I'm just like I feel like I'm just like moving farther and farther away from archaeology, um, as as like an academic. Yeah, which is interesting. So like the the most recent episode of Go Dig a Hole, I I put uh, your segment on there, and yeah, uh, I, li- I yeah. And then thanks for the shout out in the episode before that. That that was a really good one. Yeah, thank you, thank you. You should do you should do more episodes like that because it was like not like obviously archaeology, but it was something that definitely like relates to archaeologists. Yeah, uh, I I had a lot of fun doing that episode, and I totally agree. I I definitely want to like um, start moving a little outside the box because I I think that it's good for archaeologists to be a little bit. Uh, more well-rounded oh yeah 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 <laughs> you and i both are i think <laughs> firm believers and good examples of that yeah well at least you are um no nah, you are too you are too Come <laughs> on. Come on, what are you talking about what are you talking about yeah man? oh man so i have had so, yeah, what do you want to talk about what do you want to talk about you so i you you wanted to talk about like games and music uh-huh yeah so um let me think the the last pop culture one or or rather first pop culture one that we did together was on your show Curiosity and Focus and I can't remember which episode it was uh but episode we, 30 Nice that's a good round number we uh <laughs> <laughs> we talked about What episode of Going the Hole is this? Um This is uh 39 Let me check 39 Oh it would have been perfect if it was 40 Yeah another nice round number uh yeah but yeah, so we talked about movies on on that one, and that was that was a ton of fun. And then we, uh, I think we revisited some. <laughs> we, we we revisited some of the things we talked about uh, when on episode thirty five of my show, "The Truth About Archaeology." That's and because right. because I had just come back from China, and we talked about Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Yes, um, on episode thirty five and on episode thirty. Yeah, but I had watched them by then because of the episode we did. Yeah, and you briefly mentioned uh, Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which I then watched upon your recommendation, and (laughs) wow, what a stinker! Oh my god, it's uh, uh, it's something. The scene when when they're inside the 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 burial chamber and there are all these camel spiders coming down and he's like they're they're just camel spiders it's okay but if i mean if you look it up and you read about camel spiders they've got a pretty ferocious bite but also like what are what's feeding the camel spiders down there right <laughs> like that that's always my thought it's like 
Oh yeah, so so in the Mummy, the the Brendan Fraser Rachel Vice movies, there are all those scarab beetles, and I mean they eat shit in real life. Can I swear on your show? I don't yeah, know. go for it. They they eat crap in real life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know they're they're dormant and it's kind of sci-fi. But, yeah. but the Mummy, they they take themselves so seriously. Or in the classic film, The Pyramid. There are those cannibalistic cats, but they like eat each other to survive. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But in Tom Cruise's The Mummy, it does not make sense. No, it doesn't. So point the pyramid in that little match. Never, in that little match. Never saw that one coming. Uh, no, you never never thought that the pyramid would actually get some kudos <laughs> on on your podcast of all places. <laughs> yeah. But I've been like really thinking because you, you sent me a message um just about like video games and and games and archaeology and i was like oh man i I had to like put down a list and and since you and i talked i've actually been doing like playing a lot of games that feature archaeology which is which are cool awesome yeah i was i was figuring you would be the best one to talk about um games um, yeah, when you said music, I was like, "Oh God, I don't, I don't know." I've got, <laughs> I got stories about music and archaeology, but that's about it. Yeah, not as hip as you. Well, I, I don't know. Some of them are kind of a reach, um, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I just like that we're doing this back and forth between our shows. <laughs> I dig it. Yeah, it's it's fun. So um, go dig a hole, listeners. Uh, if, if you haven't by now, you really need to listen to Curiosity and Focus. Um, it's a super awesome show. And uh, Daniel, you cover so you, you cover this really, really great variety of topics. And you've got this recurring theme of, you know, like exploring curiosity and, and learning more about these these things and kind of like taking a and I, I love the format, too. It's, it's a very casual conversational format that um you know, it's, it just feels very relaxed, and you record most of your episodes in person, right? Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's best that way, so that you, you have that sort of authentic connection between the guests. I mean, like, you and I, we record virtually because we're on literally opposite sides of North America, right. but, like, we know each <laughs> other, and we're friends in real life, and yeah. so we don't need to, like, see each other's faces to have this connection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it, it works out with us. Uh, but yeah, so listen to Curiosity and Focus. It's it's awesome. And you're uh, you've you've had a few episodes recently, and I've been following some of the things that you've been sharing on social media about representation in in pop culture. And and I feel like that's that's worth um, mentioning in this episode since we're talking about representation of archaeology in pop culture. Uh, yeah. There's there's also a very serious issue of representation of like identity and, and like cultural identity in, in pop culture. And I was watching the short film that you shared this morning. Um, oh, thanks. About, um, I forget the name. Of the, the, uh, the, the, title. the different generations, the different generations of uh, Chinese, that one. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, that, that, that one was, that was real. That felt, that one hit me. I bet. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was really, really interesting to watch and, and just ponder over, and stuff like that. And so there's this moment, um, I'll, I'll share this in the show notes, but there's this moment in the short film where <laughs> there's, there's these three generations of, of, you know, Chinese Americans or are they Chinese Canadian? They're Chinese Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they're standing outside of a Chinese restaurant because they wanted to grab some, some dumplings really quickly. 
and that you know they're they're joking on each other's like generational differences and then as they're standing outside this chinese restaurant this white guy walks up and he's like uh sorry do any of you speak english and it's like clearly they they speak english they're 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 american come on yeah and so uh and then he 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 makes that assumption so that that's the first and then he comes back for the double tap and he's like can you order in chinese for me and they're like what the hell come on and so but the best part is in the video he says he says get your damn get your own damn food <laughs> yeah order your own damn food and he slams it, the door it's behind him it's pretty great yeah um so the video is called have asians changed um it's it's by these two brothers um, the, the middle generation character in that uh, short film is one of the brothers, but they're called the Fung Bros. Oh, cool. Uh, so, so they have a YouTube channel. They're, they're really awesome. They kind of moved from, I think they started off in Seattle, Seattle and they went to L.A. and New York. Uh, I forget where they are now, but they make some amazing content. But this is really different for them. Uh, it, was a, it was like a really serious film about representation. And they, they, they talk a lot about that in their show. But nothing to to this level so i i really like that they did that it was a nice change uh, but yeah a asian representation is really important to me you know in in you know in pop culture and media but also like you know how our disciplines and our careers are represented like we're, we're going to talk about archaeology and pop culture and we talk about it a lot but it is really is really poorly represented in media yeah. and in pop culture but but for good reason but for good reason um, so I, I put out that short film on the Curiosity and Focus YouTube channel, and it was about my most recent trip to China. And for somebody who really isn't an archaeologist, it it would it would seem boring. And I, I would I totally get that, and I totally see that. You know, archaeology as a discipline, in my opinion, outside of the documentary film, um, the documentary film sort of format, is really hard to capture in fiction really hard to capture in, in an entertaining way that applies to everybody. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're, they're, you're going to have to exaggerate some parts. I mean, we've all been on those digs where there's, like, tons and tons of drinking, and then there's that stereotype <laughs> that archaeologists are alcoholics, and maybe it's not a stereotype. Yeah. But then there are the digs where there's, like, lots of drama, and, like, you know, people are falling for each other, and then there are, like, relationships forming <laughs> on the dig, and that happens. And then there are the digs when it's just, like, super chill. And in fiction, it's about finding this like happy medium in between, but also capturing the fact that you know, archaeology is not about the people who are doing it, but about the people who are trying to tell the stories for. Yeah. And so it's really, really difficult. And, and I recognize that. And I try to, you know, and I think you do the same. I, I think we try to be critical, but also, you know, just enjoy what's out there. That's uh -huh. why we can watch like The Mummy and The Pyramid and, you know, still kind of get a laugh out of them or enjoy movies like like Prometheus. Right. Like I definitely don't take it it too seriously. Um and I I definitely don't take myself too seriously. I, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself then it, life is misery and pain. But um yeah, I totally agree. Like archaeology is poorly represented just as you said for good reason because you can't jazz up the monotony of, you know, like no, you can't. 8 hours of digging without finding anything which often happens or you know the mountains of paperwork that you have to fill out um and you know the hours and hours behind a desk writing uh writing up everything that you do in the field um but you know there's there's plenty of excitement in you know the the human aspect of it of um you know the working with with other people um meeting and learning other people 
And it's also kind of interesting because on longer projects, you know, you you more or less are forced to live with these people. And uh, yeah, and you know, so it's almost like a big brother thing. Yeah, yeah. On that note, a quick aside. Uh, <laughs> when I was an undergrad, uh, I was I was on a field school in Belize, and um, the <laughs> two reality TV shows were filmed uh, around this, or they were attempting to film around this field school. One of them was um, I forget what it's called, like ancient bones or something like that it was this horrible like discovery channel um you, you know like just oh, how how isn't it first of all isn't it amazing how far the discovery channel has fallen yeah or <laughs> it really is like when i was a kid it, it, it was like full-on educational like you it could was dope yeah <laughs> it was awesome and now it's like well maybe it was aliens for like everything or it, or it's like you know like let's yeah. loot this thing it, it looks cool uh and then posting pseudoscience with the same seriousness as real science and, and it's just it's really disappointing but one of them was was kind of like that it, it was you know like examining the the crystal skulls and um so we're i'm i'm in the background of a few shots like as i'm digging and um they're they're interviewing dr jaime awe who at the time was the director of the national institute of archaeology for belize and, and now he's a professor at northern arizona university but you know he's he he knows his stuff when it comes to Maya archaeology, and so they're they're talking to him. And there there were a few moments in the show where they just ask him these absurd questions because they're trying to lead the conversation in a way that's you know very like media friendly, like producer friendly kind of thing. Like they they want some excitement and something exotic to talk about, and <clears throat> like Dr. Awe is entertaining enough as he is if you get to know him, but not in a show and so they're talking about like crystal skulls and stuff and and you can tell he's just like what no and uh yeah there was that <laughs> one but to go back to your your comment about big brother uh a tv crew tried to get like a big brother style reality tv show filmed with our field school and they kept throwing these huge parties for us with tons of booze like free booze and it's like what better way to incite drama um, but we, <laughs> for the most part, I feel like we would rally together, like in secret, uh, you know, away from the, the producers and, and the film team. And we'd be like, all right, here's our plan. We're going to go, we're going to drink all their booze and then we're going to bolt. And it would happen every time. And they didn't end up getting a show out of it, but, uh, it was, it was very entertaining. <laughs> I, always, I always thought that if you were to try to accurately portray archeology span in a really you know, entertaining and interesting and perhaps even educational manner. You do it the way that um, Michael Schur revived The Office. Yeah. And, and you do it, you do it, you know, a, a show about nothing like Seinfeld or a show about, you know, common people like The Office. And you would just call it The Dig. And it would have all of these interesting characters. It would have like, you know, the eccentric weird guy like Dwight, and it would be like me. <laughs> uh, it would have like you're Dwight. Have, like, the gym. I'm Dwight. I'm 100 Dwight. Uh, it would have like you're 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 like a Jim Halpert sort of character. You're sure um, I'm not Michael Scott? Nah, nah. <laughs> Unless you want to be. I love Michael Scott. Yeah. But you have those characters, you know, doing archaeology, and maybe the Michael Scott character would be this really eccentric professor who wants to do all these crazy things on the dig, or maybe wants to reconnect with with their kid um and so they're always trying to be cool like michael is but the grad students aren't having it yeah um 
the intern Ryan the Temp would be, you know, uh, an undergrad who's trying to do an independent study, and it's just caught up in like this world that they didn't expect. And it would just be about people doing archaeology, and so you'd have scenes of them working in the field, or maybe it's a CRM company, and then the office scenes are them processing the the data, processing everything that they found, and the monotony of actually cleaning. But you can make it comedic in the way that the office made office work, you know, comedic. Yeah, that's a really great idea, and I would super love to watch that. Uh, and networks, if you're listening to this, uh, hit me up, uh, Daniel H. Kwan on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always had that idea, and I've always wanted to like film something like that while I was on a dig. But everyone that I travel with hates being on camera. Yeah. So I've never been able to. Yeah, I often have that uh, same challenge, uh, you know, off camera. I, I can't tell you how many uh, failed attempts I have at getting people to come on the show. Um, you know, just because they're like, eh, I don't really feel good about talking on, and being recorded, and I'm like, well, oh. come on, come on. It's, well, it's anytime fine. you want me to be on your show, I love talking and being recorded. So. <laughs> I'm more than happy. I'm having the, I'm having this problem now where there are people who are hitting me up, people in my life who are hitting me up saying, hey, we should do an episode. And I'm getting to the point where I'm like, uh, how do I say no? That's a good problem to have. It's it's cool. Like I've got some dope guests. I have um, – I'm really – I'm working on one right now. It's not confirmed yet. Uh, but – I there's a museum in Vancouver, which is closer to you than it is to me, um, called the Chinese Canadian Military Museum Society, and they are responsible for they're they're independent, but they're they're responsible for documenting all of the Chinese Canadians who fought in the Great Wars, so First World War and Second World War, and because a lot of Asians weren't actually uh, allowed to fight, like in 1914 when World War II broke out in Canada, like 200. Chinese people went to sign up and volunteer, and they straight up denied them the right to fight. Wow. And there's this guy uh, named uh, Wee Tan Louie, and he went to Kamloops in B.C., uh-huh. and he went to sign up in 1917 when Canada was starting to be really desperate. Uh, and he went to sign up, and the enlistment officers for that particular unit said, no, we don't want you. You're foreign. We, you're not allowed to fight for Canada. This is a white man's war. And instead of giving up, he did this really amazing thing where he rode for three months on horseback across the Rocky Mountains to Calgary, signed up there, and a unit there accepted him. Wow. He fought in the war, and he won medals. And his brother didn't have the same difficulties, signed up in a different place, became a gunner, and also survived the war. And, his, and the, the famous brother, his helmet is actually in the museum. Wow. It's it's super cool. Yeah, that's um, awesome. It's super cool. So I have, uh, I got in touch with the museum. And the thing about podcasting, if any of your listeners want to be a podcaster or you know blog or write, there's a lot of rejection. Oh on, yeah, like you rejecting people and people rejecting you. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I I have this like email that I send out, and I, and I tailor it to who I'm sending it to. But it's my one page. Do you have a one page yet? Uh, like a one pager. No. You should get one. I don't you even know what one. this is. Tell me what this so, is. Uh, so, like, like a, a one page in, in the way that I'm doing it, it, it's essentially like a business proposal. It's it's what we do. Uh huh. It's what we do. It's like, okay, Curiosity and Focus by Daniel Kwan. This is what I'm doing. 
this is, you know, these are my metrics. This is my social, my social media. These are my sponsors. These are my past sponsors. Um, and, and then I, I'll say something like, hey, I, I'd like you to be on the show because I think what you do is amazing. And I have a passion for learning and I want to share your knowledge with my audience. And so it's a way for me to uh, actually communicate with people I want to be on the show and sponsors. I'll, I'll send you mine. I'll send you mine so you can see what I, what I did. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, it's how I got my sponsors, actually. Um, but I, I emailed the museum. I got no response. So I, I took the next step, and I called them. And, and I feel like a lot of people have lost the art of using the telephone. Um, but I really like talking on the phone. Yeah. Um, so I called the museum, and I got this really cranky reception. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm looking for the curator. Uh, what's your can you uh, patch me patch me forward to her and they were like no she's busy right now but here's her email and it was like this really a personal email account so it wasn't professional it was a yahoo email account actually yeah uh so i'm like am i being like punked so i emailed it <laughs> and she got back to me and she said hey we're really busy leading up to remembrance day i want to do a remembrance day episode um about chinese canadians in world war one um and but she said there's this guy He's doing research, and he found a previously unknown record of a Chinese-Canadian who fought at Battle of Hill 70. And I think he might be willing and able to talk to you. Oh, wow. So this is an episode that I'm really working on. And, yeah. and I, I like that you brought up representation because I have the perfect segue for us. Nice. Um, so we wanted to talk about archaeology in, in like music and video games. Uh-huh. Now... Have you seen the trailer for the new Tomb Raider movie? Uh, no, I've I've actually tried pretty hard to avoid uh, watching it. Okay, so the new Tomb Raider movie is an adaptation of the 2013 Tomb Raider video game, which was a reboot of the series. But the new Tomb Raider movie actually has a really amazing Asian actor in it named Daniel Wu. Now Daniel Wu is he he was actually uh, I think he was born in he was born in the United States I think he was born in California uh -huh. and then he moved to Hong Kong, um, but he like speaks perfect English he speaks perfect Chinese I don't think he can read Chinese though, um, but he stars in that AMC TV show Into the Badlands which oh is yeah really great yeah it's a really great show he's that like really good looking Asian dude he's the lead uh -huh. um, he did uh, a movie with Jackie Chan but he's in this upcoming Tomb Raider like movie. So because he's in it, I'm 100% going to go watch it yeah. in theaters because he's actually one of the leads. That's awesome. So he's he's a protagonist then? He's a protagonist in it. He's, as as far as I know, he's the, the captain of the ship that Laura actually um, charters to go find her father. That's awesome. It's really cool. And it's got, a, it's got, got actually an amazing cast. So first of all, Nick Frost is in it. Nick Frost is, is amazing. It, you know, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, yeah. uh, World's End, uh, Tintin. Uh, it's got um, Dominic West, who's an amazing actor. Um, he he was in uh, he's in The Wire. He played uh, Jimmy in The Wire. Oh yes, um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And it's got Daniel Wu, who's amazing, and perhaps and of course uh, Alicia Vikander is is Lara Croft. So she looks a lot like Lara Croft, and she's yeah. uh, a dancer. So she could do all the acrobatics. Nice. So I hope she does a lot of her own stunts. And I think she won an Academy Award. Um, so she's a legit actress. Uh, and then my favorite actor in the entire cast is Walton Goggins. 
I, I don't know if you know who he is. I do not. I, I okay, feel like so, I need IMDb like just pulled up like right I now. I feel like you've seen him before. He was in The Shield, if you ever watched The Shield, uh, with Michael Chiklis. Um, but he his best role is in the TV show Justified, one of my favorites. I do like Justified. So he plays Boyd Crowder in Justified. Oh, the guy who okay. kind of switches sides. Yeah. So that's Boyd. Nice. Um, but he's so he's in Tomb Raider. So they've got this amazing cast for this movie, uh, that's based on actually like a really great video game, but a terrible archaeology video game. <laughs> yeah, I used to play the uh, the first Tomb Raider on the first uh, PlayStation. On the PlayStation One, yeah. yeah. When everything was pixelated and her body was like really strangely proportioned. Yeah, it was it was all like a, a cluster of strangely shaped polygons that was like vaguely over sexualized and it was very strange uh yeah they well they did this so the the new tomb raider movie is actually based on a reboot they did of the series so in 2013 they made um i think it was square enix made made this actually amazing video game i've played through it i've beaten it it's awesome uh where it's young lara croft and she's on this boat uh looking for what is linked to this shinto sun goddess and her boat runs into this sort of mythical storm. There's kind of magic that's implied. Uh-huh. And she gets marooned on this island. And so on this island, there are all these, like, hostile people. There are these paramilitary people. Um, and then there's there are these, like, seemingly, like, mythical oni, like uh, Japanese demons. Yeah. Um, so it has the archaeology feel. But at the beginning of the game, she's actually, like, this, like, sort of young student she she appears as though she's in her early 20s and on the island she actually has no survival skills she gets beat up she kills a person for the first time so it's actually her becoming the Lara croft that you see in the original games oh nice and then in the second game the follow-up to it rise of the tomb raider she's dealing with the fallout of the first game so she has ptsd um and there's a lot more archaeology in it uh so it, it's it's they're actually really good character games. Like Lara Croft is a legit badass in those games because she feels more human. That's and, awesome. And like less less of a killing machine. Yeah. But in the <laughs> in the sequel, they actually tried to make it more archaeology. You can like explore tombs and uh, you can um, uh, like decipher like Greek writing and hieroglyphs. It, it's actually pretty neat. Yeah. Um, but then there are parts where you're like running across like ruins and getting shot at and you're shooting at people and that's where it gets less archaeological. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know many archaeologists that shoot people. Um although there there are plenty of times where live fire is involved in the field. Um that kind of sucks, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm sure a lot of archaeologists, you know, shoot guns. <laughs> um I'm sure that a lot of archaeologists have been in countries where guns are shot near them. Uh huh. Um, when I worked in Jordan, there were gunshots near me all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, people like celebrating weddings, or there were even riots in the town I was living in, and they were just they like destroyed like a police station and some buses. It was actually really cool. Yeah. Um, have, but nothing ever like nothing ever like the movies. Yeah, having worked in the states doing uh, cultural resource archaeology, uh, I've. I've had guns shot at me many times, and it's it's not fun. Uh, no, but uh, like you're in somebody's field, and they're like, "You're on my land." Yeah, or uh, you, 
there's there's just so many people with guns here and um such poor uh trigger discipline and so <laughs> i can't tell you how many times it, it's just like some idiot will just be like goofing off in the woods while we're doing uh, a survey in the woods and they don't realize that there's somebody downrange of them and they're just firing off shots willy-nilly and oh, you know like bullets just come whizzing by uh and there was <laughs> i don't even know if i want to go into this story maybe, maybe i'll cut this out when i'm when i'm doing editing later but uh may as well may as well say it now uh so i uh i used to work on military bases a lot and so i i got really used to the sound of fire um you know for from various weapons ranging from yeah. you know pistols and rifles up to like tanks and helicopters and stuff and um but i always felt safe working on the base because in the morning before i would even get near the base I would call range control and I would have to check in and tell them, you know, the area that I wanted to work in and kind of describe my movements that I intended to do. And so I would have everything planned out on a map ahead of time and, you know, coordinated with them and, and they would either say yes or no. And if it was no, then I'd have backup areas that I could try and check into. And, you know, if anything changed throughout the day, they would call me or I would call them. And, you know, I, I always felt like, you know, they, they kept me out of harm's way. And so this one time, though, I was working on um, a base and we we hear, um, you know, machine gun fire and it it just doesn't sound right. And I'm I'm thinking, yeah, we're also working on the edge of the base. And, uh, you know, it's it's, you know, 110,000 acres of wilderness. And so the the edge of the base is is just the same as the, the wilderness that extends beyond it that doesn't belong to the base. And so we're we're hiking along, and then all of a sudden, you the machine gun fire sounds just way too close, and bullets start whizzing past us, and it's just going <laughs> like right past us. Jesus! And there's bark exploding off of trees. There's branches falling off of trees, and we all hit the ground, and we're just laying as flat as we can, as just like mayhem is breaking loose around us, and. Um, you know, while I'm laying flat on the ground, I call range control and I'm like, we're taking fire. And he goes, well, it's not us. And I was like, all the same, I'm taking fire. Oh, Jesus. I need you to figure this out. I am on the base and I'm taking fire. And so he figures out that there's a civilian gun range really close by and their range fan points the direction of where we were surveying. And, oh, no. And it's one of the few gun ranges in the country that has a certain weapon permit where they can fire these military-grade machine guns. And so we've got a 50 caliber machine gun just raining bullets on us. And Jeez. so it's it's terrifying. And so he he calls me back after coordinating with, with the, the gun range, and he's like, if they stop firing, can you get out of there? And I was like, yes, please get them to stop firing. He goes, okay, Um stay he goes he goes where you are now are you safe and i was like i sure hope so but i can't move i'm i'm like i'm literally pinned to the ground right now you're you're suppressed yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh so uh he goes okay then stay where you are do not move i'll call you back and so he, he calls me back and he's like okay i've confirmed they've stopped firing get out of there and i was like okay i'm gonna get out of there and so we we sprint to the trucks 
and just drive like maniacs out of there. And then once I was out of there, I called, I called range control again. I was like, okay, we're out. And he goes, okay, uh, you need to come to us and we, we got some talking to do. And so I had to sit down with the, the military lawyers and, um, you know, several base personnel and, you know, talk through what happened. And then, you know, they, long story short, we were safe. Uh, our, that's our, crazy. Our truck was okay, safe. Please. But, uh, you know, it's been this back and forth legal battle of <laughs> does the gun range have the right to, uh, you know, keep firing these weapons um, in that direction. And also it's one of those things that they just never encountered the situation of someone standing on base property inside the overlap of the range fan. And so they discovered that the range fan does indeed overlap significantly into that portion of the base. So they were like, well, I guess we just never send people there for now until wow. we sort out this, this legal thing. But yeah, that was, that was like the scariest uh, gun incident that I've had as an archeologist. That sucks. Can, can you, can you not cut that out? Cause that's actually <laughs> a great story for your audience. Yeah. I guess I will leave that in. Uh, that that's an amazing story. Yeah. So holy, holy cow. Yeah. So now I'm I don't even not know how we that, got to that. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that big of a fan of guns anymore, but go figure. Um, yeah, I know. Go figure, man. Yeah. Wow. Holy cow. We, we, we had originally planned to just talk about games and music, but then this, this got real. I yeah. like this. Yeah. You never know where it's going to go with us. Um, no, it's true. We, we shouldn't even plan. We should, let's just talk. Just riff. <laughs> yeah. Let's just riff off of each other. I actually, um, it, it's funny. I was, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, and I was like, okay, you know, like I I would do your show even if I have nothing to promote because you know I just like I like talking to you. It's good for us to catch up. Yeah. Likewise. And then I started thinking about like, oh, what what games are in my life that feature archaeology, and I made like this list, and most of them were like, yeah, Tomb Raider. Yeah. Uh, well, you do tabletop so, gaming too, right? I do tabletop gaming too. Uh, there are a couple actually. <laughs> there's this. There's a really good. Um, there's a really good game called a game series published by Nintendo called Animal Crossing. And uh, big scoop, there's a new Animal Crossing game coming out for iOS and Android. Oh, uh, it's nice. the first mobile it's an, and Nintendo's first Animal Crossing mobile game that isn't uh, on a handheld console. Um, and it's coming out on I don't know when it's coming out, but they just announced it last week. Um, but there's this game for the Nintendo 3DS called Animal Crossing uh, New Leaf. And essentially what happens is you're mistaken as the mayor of this small town filled with anthropomorphic animals. It's a very cute game. It's, it's a kid's game. <laughs> and you you arrive at town, you get, a, you get a little house, and all you're in charge of is just keeping the town happy. And so when I played the game, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I, like, filled my house with furniture. You could expand your house. You can earn money to expand your house and talk to the, talk to the townspeople. But also... The town in the game has a museum. Oh, nice. And so you can actually go and you can like dig holes um, where where there need to be repairs. And sometimes you'll find things like archaeological artifacts or you'll find dinosaur fossils or, you know, ridiculous things all in one strata. But you, the game actually gets you to find these things and deliver them to the museum. And the museum has a curator and you can actually go visit your museum and everything is organized Oh wow! By by what you find, and what's really cool is because it's a Japanese game, they feature a lot of Japanese archaeology, um, and 
the most interesting thing that they find that they actually feature in the game are Jomon pots. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and so I did my master's studying early Jomon pots from Hokkaido, and I have like a really strong attachment to them. And seeing them in like a video game that's designed for kids and adults, because I played it with all of my adult coworkers. Um, we you can you can like play over um, over Wi-Fi and you can visit each other's towns and stuff. Um, I make it sound really lame, but it's super cool. Um, but it was like I'm actually seeing something I did my master's on inside a video game that millions of people will play. That and it's is like really cool, and it's done pretty faithfully. It's a fun game, but then like uh, I would be playing it, and an ex is like, "Daniel, are you just like your character looks like you? Are you just playing your life <laughs> handheld?" I was like, "Oh, maybe." <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I like Animal Crossing New Leaf, like an amazing game for for archaeology. Yeah, and there's this new game that's a, a hit in the United States. It's, it's a well North America. It's a big hit. It's now on the Nintendo Switch. It's called Stardew Valley. So Stardew Valley has a very similar approach to Animal Crossing, except it's you're this you're this dude, and you're you're living this boring nine to five corporate office job, and you hate your life. And one day you receive this letter in the mail and your grandpa's passed away and you've inherited his farm. And so the, the premise of the game is you go to his farm and you try to build it up. You clear the land and there's this town you're living in, Stardew Valley. But the town also has a museum and there are these mines that you can explore in the town and you can find, you know, uh, minerals, archaeological artifacts, fossils, and you can actually deliver them to the museum and set up the museum the way you want it. It's really cool. That is Again, awesome. I'm just playing my fantasies of uh, disappearing from the city and living on a farm, <laughs> uh, and but also working at a museum at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but there's so many games, and then there's the uh, the Uncharted games. If you've ever played those, those are a lot of fun. I have not. And so earlier, I I had mentioned that you you would be the the best person to talk about games because I I really don't play that many games, video games or, or uh, you know tabletop games, but they're interesting to me i just don't really make the time for it um i mean you you got like you've got a lot going on yeah it's also the games that i tend to be drawn to or i haven't played in a long time i i still like since i moved uh i haven't set my uh xbox back up but um you know i I play a lot of um like shooter games and yeah um, i i do play um diablo like diablo 3 um uh, which yeah, is yeah vaguely you know like uh rpg um it's more just kind of like a, a button masher hack and slash hack yeah. and slash that's the term i was searching for yeah uh but that's fun my brother and i will play that together and just like goof off we we make characters that are just like the most ridiculous we can possibly make them and give them absurd names and stuff uh <laughs> just go for it yeah yeah well you should you have an xbox and i guess you couldn't play it. the uh the uncharted series there's now five of the main games and plus a, a handheld one um plus a mobile game actually oh nice uh but the first four uncharted games are about this treasure hunter named nathan drake and in the first game it actually starts off in panama and he nathan drake believes that he is one of the descendants of sir francis drake and he is um uh, you know he he deserves this treasure that's hidden and he has this sir francis drake's ring and he goes on this adventure trying to find his treasures um the second game in the series is fantastic uh because he goes to nepal 
and there are um, like, uh, and then the third one, he actually goes to Syria and France. Um, but what's really great about the Uncharted series and the latest Uncharted game, Uncharted Lost Legacy, is that they have uh, amazing portrayals of female characters. How so? Um, it's one of the few video game series that I know of where, you know, female characters wear functional clothing. <laughs> um, they're treated as equals, if not better than their, the male protagonists as uh -huh. well. And the newest game, Uncharted Lost Legacy, doesn't feature Nathan Drake from the first four games. They take, they took two side characters, um, one named, uh, Chloe Frazier and the other Nadine Ross, and they go on this adventure in India. Now, Chloe Frazier, the main character of Uncharted Lost Legacy, the playable character, um, is of Indian descent, and she's looking for the Tusk of Ganesh, um, an artifact that, you know, in, in Hindu mythology, um, Hin uh, Ganesh lost his tusk. It yeah. got cut off by um, uh, Parashurama, who's, who's an avatar of one of the Hindu deities. Uh-huh. Um, and she's looking for this tusk because it's been haunting her because her father, who was an, uh, an archaeologist, went crazy and disappeared and his life went to ruin looking for this artifact. But it's awesome because you have this female protagonist who's badass. She's like a gunslinger. She fights. Her partner in crime, Nadine Ross, is like was the former head of a mercenary company from a previous Uncharted game. Um, you have an... Uh, a um, you have an an Asian main character in a what what we call like a triple A video game. Like these are video games with like like thirty million dollar budgets. Oh wow! Yeah, they're they're huge. They're they're gigantic. They take years to make. Um, and Uncharted Lost Legacy, the the latest game, the main character is Asian. Is an Asian woman. That's awesome. It, it's incredible, and you know you go through India, and it's beautiful. You, they do their research. You learn all about Hindu mythology. Obviously, like the artifacts might be fake, um, but you, the mythology is real, and they try to, you know, inform the design by, you know, actual, you know, the actual country of India. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, really cool. Um, I really like Uncharted for that, and the company who makes it, uh, Naughty Dog, um, that I believe the head of development on those Uncharted games was also a woman. Oh, that's cool. Which is really uncommon in, in the video game industry. Right. Yeah, it seems to be a very male-dominated industry. Um, very much so. Yeah. Um, but I've, for all archaeologists, I mean, if you like like a fun game that plays out like you want the Indiana Jones movies, but you have some agency over it, I highly recommend the Uncharted games, as long as you don't take the archaeology seriously. Yeah. So is but there... it's beautiful. Is there the the treatment of artifacts? Is it like, um, how do I say? It? Are are you looting them or is you're you're treasure hunters? You're treasure hunters, <laughs> um, yeah. but you're usually treasure hunters who are competing against somebody else. Okay, uh, somebody evil, somebody objectively evil. So in Uncharted Lost Legacy, uh, the the antagonist is the head of this. Uh, you could they're they're kind of portrayed as a. Uh, like a like an insurgent group um in in you know in india and um you uh 
and they're trying to get this uh, tusk so that they could fund their war effort. Ah. And in the beginning of the game, you know, it's kind of framed as though uh, Chloe has, you know, this journey to find the tusk to complete her father's work. But later on, she realizes that she's competing against this warlord and that by getting the tusk, she's able to keep weapons out of his hands. That's interesting. And it's also, you know, like uh, vaguely rooted in, in history as well. It sounds it sounds very similar to what was happening during uh, the colonial occupations of like Africa and, and Asia. Like, uh, and- oh, I mean, like even even more recently, uh, you can you could take it back to the the invasion of Iraq. And oh, how yeah. the the Baghdad Museum was looted, uh-huh. and all of those uh, artifacts were put onto the black market to fund their own war effort there. Yeah, and even that, that's more, even recently, more modern. Uh, there was an investigation that uh, there's this like very extreme right wing fundamentalist um, Christian uh, like craft supply store, a Hobby Lobby in the states, and okay. uh, they there was an investigation that found that. Hobby Lobby was one selling artifacts that were also looted from uh, the Middle East, uh, oh God. and that the the chain of custody actually ended up with the money that that was spent to procure these these artifacts uh, funded ISIS. So, good job, Whoa. Hobby Lobby. Good job. Wow. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah, pretty Learned much. Learn something up. new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag stay curious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like you like you mentioned earlier, my, a lot of my you know I might be an archaeologist, but people who listen to the the latest episode of Go Dig a Hole, um, know that you know I also work in gaming. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really passionate about are tabletop RPGs because of the the high potential that they hold to be educational tools. Right. And longer than I've been an archaeologist, I've actually been working with gaming and teaching young people. And most recently, I've kind of been branching off away from fantasy into science fiction. And I've discovered this really amazing game um, called Coriolis. Um, now, Cor- Coriolis is a beautiful book. It's really hard to find, unfortunately, here in Canada. But it's an RPG that is described as like Arabian nights in space. Um, it's oh, like a wow. space opera that takes place in this whole other star system called the third horizon. And everything there though is inspired by what you could call like West Asia. Um, like the aesthetics, the people, the religions, the mythology, uh-huh. uh, the fashion are all inspired by that, but in a very positive way. So it's really interesting to see uh, an RPG take on elements i I don't want to say appropriate um because when we when we create fiction you obviously draw inspiration from things yeah and this is like high science fiction um but you you see an rpg that takes on um you know the mythology archaeology uh fashion um might not necessarily be like the the gender norms or gender roles Uh but but the aesthetics of a part of the world that you know media here in north america tends to kind of vilify and, and make them the protagonists of this beautiful and positive RPG. That's an important point that, that you just said, uh, that media, especially in Western society, tends to vilify uh, these cultures. And I had 
it, this was kind of rattling around in my brain earlier as y- as you were talking about uh you know having having asian like figures in in media to be able to like uh identify with and uh, you know i was wondering like what you know growing up as a kid a lot of the the movies and stuff um like any portrait like action movies uh, and tv shows and stuff like that um and this came up when we were talking about movies uh on episode 30 of your show like short round is is just like this obnoxious portrayal of of like (laughs) asian american but um you know like in action movies you know throughout most of of our childhoods uh most portrayal of asian characters has been bad like they've been the antagonists and so you know yeah i think that that uh that that's an important echo of the the larger cultural structure where you know these these films are being created and what i mean by that is that uh you know like you can kind of see the film industry kind of trying to play off of like the united states really like ramping up for war and posturing and stuff like that and so you know for most of our lives there's been this kind of antagonistic relationship with china and korea you know between them and the united states and even though yeah you know there's there's clearly a very lucrative um you know financial transaction going on in terms of of trade between the united states and china um you know the the media has not been friendly and neither neither has you know foreign policy and so you know you see these these antagonistic foreign policies being echoed in media and so you know then you've got you know this really popular i wouldn't say really popular but this this you know recurrent theme of like korea being you know the the bad guy and so oh yeah um you know you've got that in some of the james bond movies you've got it in some video games you've got it in tv shows and stuff like that and you know it's just i i think it's conditioning um audiences to be willing to accept um the the kind of vilification that you would have for an enemy in in war absolutely well that's why i really like this game because i i play it with you know, clients in, in my my one of my side businesses, uh, Level Up Gaming. Yeah. And I am playing it with my students at the ROM. And what's cool is that, you know, in tabletop RPGs, for the most part, you have to pick a class or like a profession. And one of them in Coriolis is scientist. But there's a subclass of scientist called archaeologist. And you actually it's actually <laughs> a defined role in this game where you play as an archaeologist. Nice. And And this game can be played without killing anything. You design a spaceship, and you can just go exploring the third horizon. Nice. Um, as an archaeologist, you're investigating the ancient portal builders. They're like these this ancient alien race that built these portals that link all the stars together. Um, so you can actually play as an archaeologist, and the tools that you get that in your character, you can get like a portable lab. You can get uh, a suit that. Um, you know, a suit that protects you uh, when you go into harsh cl- environments. Uh, you can get tools that will help you investigate things. And what's actually really interesting is that one of my students, um, he's 11 years old, and he's playing. He wanted to play. He told me, he said, Daniel, I want to play as a class that doesn't have any weapons and it doesn't fight. He said, because I want to role play. And I don't wow. want to role play something that fights. And I said, okay, sounds good. So in our group, we have um, one of my students. She's, she's the, the officer of their ship. 
they have been hired by a a church called the Church of the Icons. And in this world, the icons are are the gods that watch over everything and allow people to conduct their lives in space. Huh. And this church, I didn't want to make the church the villains. Right. Um, the church wants to know more about the portal builders. And this signal has opened up on this moon that was struck by an asteroid. And so they went to investigate the signal. So one of my students is uh, the officer of their ship. Um, another student is the pilot. Uh, I have another who's their scout. Um, and then I have two scientists. And two of the students are scientists. And the one who didn't want to fight, he was the archaeologist. And when they landed on the, you know, in, in game, when the narrative put them on the surface of that planet-like moon, they were all like, okay, we get off the ship. And my student said, wait, 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 wait. We need to check to make sure the atmosphere is breathable. <laughs> Smart. And he, and he said, okay, on my character sheet, it says that I have uh, an environment scanner. So, and my suit also says that uh, it has an oxygen supply. So I want to get out of the ship first and check for my friends. Um, and I worked into the story that they were actually finding out more about these portal builder aliens. And so they found these portal builder artifacts. And he was like, okay, I want to actually take, <laughs> he said this, he said, I want my character to be taking photos of it. And I want my character to be taking samples of things that have fallen off of it, not from them. And I hadn't, I hadn't told him anything. And he asked for those things specifically. Wow. So first of all, photos archaeology uh -huh. and he didn't want to destroy what was in the narrative already you know constructed he wanted to take something that had fallen off or had been destroyed already so he didn't want to further compromise the artifact dude good work yeah and he's 11 years old but this is all from one tabletop game but it's interesting because it's a tabletop game that doesn't reward you for killing things yeah it rewards you for participating in whatever your narrative is it rewards you for, um, you know, having your character's personal problems may maybe cause trouble for the crew. Yeah. Um, it rewards you for helping out your friends. It, it's it's a really great social game, but I play it with my students and I play it with my, my own adult friends as well. Uh, and my character was an archaeologist. Um, but it's, it's super fun. I, I think anybody who is in archaeology and really likes gaming and is you know maybe tired of Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah. Uh, get get your hands on Coriolis. It's an incredible game. I'm gonna have to check that out. I've I've been uh, wanting to get um, some tabletop games, and and that sounds like a good one. Another tabletop game. It's also easy to learn too. That's pretty crucial because uh, D and D can. I, I feel like D and D is a hard one to get into unless you have some experienced players with you to kind of guide you. Um, yeah, and Cor Coriolis, the rule book is actually the core rule. It's only got one book plus all of these little supplements that are nice. adventures. But the core book, half of it is how to play, and the other half is on the lore of the world. Oh, it's, it's really cool. It, it, honestly, it would be a beautiful coffee table book. Yeah. Nice. It, it's gorgeous. I highly recommend it. Well, there's another tabletop game that is um, fairly – it. I, I have not played it. Uh, I've only read about it and watched a, a little video on their Kickstarter. Uh, it, it's called Potlatch, and it is. A oh yeah, you shared that on Facebook. Yeah, I saw. I saw. Um, Paulina uh, Prestupa was the the first one that I saw shared it on my uh, my Twitter timeline, and uh, so I was checking it out. It looks awesome. It's it's a like tabletop game 
that's based on the uh, economic principles of the Coast Salish Indians uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, in, in real life, they, they have the, the potlatch ceremony. And but it's bilingual. The game is bilingual, too. Yeah. And so it just looks it, it looks really cool. And it also looks like a really great way to kind of bring um, like indigenous culture and indigenous perspectives into pop culture uh, or, you know, into, you know, just the household. Um, so that's that's pretty awesome. Um, I, that's, I, that's amazing. Yeah. I hope it gets funded. I, I haven't checked on their. It Kickstarter. does. It, it did. It's it's ready to go. Oh, cool. It's they did a really interesting strategy for Kickstarter because it has 53 days to go. Um, they asked for twenty five hundred dollars, and they've made close to five grand. Wow, nice! Um, so it's fully funded. Uh, so, so listeners, I'm sure this will be in your in your show notes. Yeah, but you can actually get the game. It's fi- oh wow, it's so cheap. You can get the game for fifteen bucks American, and it'll ship to anywhere in the world. Um, you'll get stickers and and everything with it. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I kickstart a lot. I kickstart a lot of RPGs because that's how many of them are made. There's actually a great tabletop RPG called Aegon, A G O N, uh, by a designer named John Harper, and it takes place in ancient Greece. Oh, nice. Uh, there's one called Tales of the Icelanders, and uh, you take the role of Norse sailors and explorers, but it isn't all about killing; it's about exploring. Um, I was actually so. Uh, I'm not sure what, what day this, this episode comes out, but we're recording on October 29th and it was my birthday yesterday. So this morning, my brother and I, we went shopping. Nice. Um, we went shopping cause, uh, I'm the only, I'm the one with the car and he doesn't have a car. <laughs> um, and so we went, so it was like, I took him shopping. Um, but we were walking around, uh, chapters. I think it's, it's our, what's the big bookstore? Well, I know Portland has that really. What was that? What's that bookstore in Portland? The really nice one that's uh, on Portlandia. Powell's Books. Powell's, but you, but the United States, you guys also have. Is it Barnes and Nobles? That's the big one. Yeah, we've got a. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the the biggest one that's still alive. There there were some other ones like Books a Million and, and stuff like that, but uh, I, I can't remember. I think Books a Million. But Barnes and Nobles is like the like the Walmart of books for you guys, right? Right. Yeah, most of them okay. have like a Starbucks in them and stuff like that. It's it's okay. So yeah. so the the canadian equivalent is chapters in indigo okay um so i was there with my brother to see the new one that's at this new mall that kind of opened up in near near my hood and i saw something that i thought i would never see at a bookstore and it was actually um a packaged version of nefetoffel what is nefetoffel nefetoffel is um a, a form of Tafel game, and Tafel games are uh, ancient Germanic and Celtic board games. Okay. So they're kind of like the precursors to chess. And Nefetoffel is is a variety of them. They're essentially like Viking board games. And you actually see like illustrations of them in the archaeological record. You hear about them in uh, a lot of different sagas. I, I believe there are... Um, I, think, I, I don't want to get this wrong... Uh, let me think. I did a lesson on this a couple months ago with my students. Um, so archaeologists have found game boards, uh-huh. and they've actually found like game boards buried with young people, like young Vikings. So what does it, that imply? Uh, that it, it's a strategy game where you uh, there are two players, an attacking force that surround a defending force led by the king, and it was. 
you know, people have interpreted it as a way for the North to teach young people strategy. Nice. And so if they buried a young person with, you know, a, a board game, it meant that, you know, learning through games was essential a part, uh, was, was an essential part of their education back then. That's really cool. But I thought it was really cool because this is a, you know, a board game that I taught to my students based on something I know from archaeology. But then I saw it in this giant bookstore chain as a beautiful packaged, like, product. And so, you know, when you mentioned Potlatch, like, the card game, I thought, well, this, I literally, just a couple hours before you and I started talking, I found an archaeological board game at a major bookstore. So I think we're in the middle of, like, a, a revolution here in terms of, you know, gaming and education. But also, you know, gaming and the education of the things we talk about as archaeologists. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth mentioning too, that there's, um, there's a, a field of study, uh, based on this called archaeogaming. And there's, uh, several researchers at, uh, the university of York in the UK, uh, it's, mm -hmm. uh, Tara Copplestone and Megan Dennis and, uh, Andrew Reinhardt and, and there's many others. Um, but they're, they're kind of like the, the central players as it were. And, uh, they they do things like that where they they'll play games and they'll apply archaeological principles to them and you know then they they write it up in you know peer review they present it at conferences and stuff like that and so they're they're very very involved in in, in all of that and I, I think it's fascinating to see that it being legitimized as you know like a, a valid field of study and and that it has real world practical implications where it's it's shaping games like you were saying we're we're seeing a revolution unfolding where games are changing but also the way that we think about games are, are changing um yeah know. there's that there's that website uh archaeogaming.com yeah yeah there was this big archaeological survey of this recent science fiction game that came out called no man's sky and it, when the game was advertised it would the game was a gigantic critical flop but when the game was advertised, it, it, it essentially allowed you to explore um, procedurally generated planets with ruins and its own biodiversity. And the, the premise of the game was to get closer and closer to the center of the galaxy. But you, in the game, you could just document all of the, the geology, the biodiversity, and the archaeology of each planet you were on. Uh, and in theory, it was like a really cool game, but it proved to be super glitchy and tedious and... Um, the creator of the game actually like went into hiding for a couple months just because of the negative uh, response to the game. <laughs> yeah, look, look up, look up the No Man's Sky flack. <laughs> you can't just hide. Come on. <laughs> yeah, just well, they a lot of people got their money back because they they felt as though that the advertising had lied to them. Oh and, wow! Uh, Hello Games, the developer yeah. and publisher, didn't really follow through with what they had planned. And the, the director of the game, um, the lead guy, Sean Murray, had got received a lot of negative press. Like, poor dude. Uh, but the game looked beautiful, it, but it was just really glitchy. Wow. Um, the procedurally, a lot of people were like, oh, there, there are going to be thousands of combinations of planets and biodiversity. But everything just kind of looked the same to people. Um, the no. way the system worked out, when people went to new planets, they saw aliens that had, like, phallic heads and stuff just because the way the computer <laughs> randomly generated it um it's really similar to this another flop of a game called spore i um, i had read out, like, something about that but I've, I've never seen it or, or or played it obviously 
Yeah, it was. Uh, Spore was another very interesting game that that taught like science. I wouldn't say Spore was a flop, but No Man's Sky was definitely a a, a critical flop. But it wow. does have its fans. Yeah, man. Well, let's pivot over to uh, TV real briefly. We yeah. we had we had kind of opened up the the show with this, and I don't think we had covered this on on your show when we were talking about movies. I, I think we we spent the whole time talking about movies on yours, right? We did, yeah, yeah. and I have a whole bunch of TV shows. <laughs> awesome. Well, to... I think I might have mentioned this one of them to you in in passing last week. Well, last we talked, or a couple a couple of times. I don't know. We talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess to to kick this off, um, Mike Judge, uh, his dad was an archaeologist, and it painted some moments in Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, really? and by some stretch of the imagination, even the movie Idiocracy as well. And so there's an episode of Beavis and Butthead where they crack on an anthropologist who comes to make a documentary on loser teens. Uh, and so he's trying to make a really quick buck on wannabe humanitarian work. Like he's he's positing that his documentary is is a humanitarian you know documentary, but he's he's trying to do like a get rich quick scream, and and so uh, one of the first appearances of Beavis's Cornholio character uh, uh-huh. is on there. And as a quick aside, I, I named an archaeological site Cornholio. Because um, I was thinking about that as as I was documenting the site. Um, there's also a scene in King of the Hill where an archaeologist digs up Hank Hill's yard and holds up a huge project and acts like a condescending know-it-all. And I don't know what Mike Judge's relationship with his father is <laughs> like, but it sounds like it was a negative one. Yeah, seeing that uh, there there has not been a positive portrayal of anthropologists or archaeologists in uh, in his work uh, is is interesting. But uh, it's it's also funny, like I said, by some stretch of the imagination, idiocracy as well, because it's you know applying the ideas of of kind of like the rise and fall of civilization. Idiocracy is a great movie. I love it. Um, but yeah, that's that's about all I've got for uh, TV. So um, let's oh, really? let's, let's hear what you've got. Yeah, that's that's all I I put together for TV. I, I figured you oh, would have, have you ever, well, I mean, a gold I'm, mine. I, I mean, what, could you say that like Rick and Morty in, in a way is anthropological? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And then learning about you know how terrible some Rick and Morty fans are. Oh my is god! Is also like a. Uh, an experience in you know ethnocentrism, misogyny, and and uh, various other negative things. It really is um, that the whole Szechuan sauce thing was oh my. Or just the God. fact that they were like uh, attacking the the female staff on the right, um, female writing staff. Right. Yeah. And and it was it was just ridiculous. Okay, there's Rick and Morty. You could say it's like vaguely anthropological and tangentially archaeological because they're going through different dimensions. Um. There's this really awful show called Bone Kickers, and it's my go-to for bad archaeology shows um, because it's one of when I when I start to watch a TV show, like I commit, like I'll, I'll at least finish the first season, and it's one of those shows that I couldn't finish. Oh, um, that's saying something. It's terrible. Uh, you can you can find clips of it on YouTube. Uh, Bone Kickers, one word, but it was a show on on the BBC about archaeologists at a fictional university so mm-hmm. it's kind of like my idea for uh the dig except uh you it know they, 
<laughs> it sucked. It was so bad. Like, you know, there, uh, there's actually a scene in, in one of the first episodes when you see all these people in the trenches and they're wearing like really stylish clothing. Uh, they're wearing really stylish clothing and, you know, the way the, the lead archaeologist talked, it was like she was the, like, Horatio of this show, like Horatio from uh, Horatio uh, CSI Miami. Yeah, from, from CSI Miami. Oh, it was oh, like that one. one. Yeah, one-liners, just one-liners. <laughs> uh, it was just so bad. And, and, and what's even, what makes it even worse was that um, they had, like, advisors. They had actual academic advisors for the show. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just, ah, I don't know. You'd have to watch it for yourself. It's really hard to describe how bad it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think the acting was very good. The, it only lasted one season, which I think was like six episodes. Um, and like, I, I remember watching the first episode as an undergrad and saying like, you know what? I, I don't even know much about archeology span yet. I'm just getting started. And I, I already know that this is wrong. Yeah. And like the show had no other redeeming qualities that made me want to watch it. Like, oh, Indiana Jones, like, you know, he's a he's a terrible archaeologist, but, you know, he's going to have an awesome adventure. Right. Um, it's going to be entertaining awesome, at the very least. And it's going to be entertaining. Or, you know, like uh, Tomb Raider, you know, the the games are like tangentially ar- ar- archaeological, but it's an action game. It's exciting. Yeah, it's good storytelling. Same with Uncharted. Excellent storytelling. Amazing characters. Um not so good archaeology, but you know you're gonna learn something from it. Uh-huh. But in this show, it was like, oh, I hate the characters. I know the archaeology's bad, and I don't like anything else about this. <laughs> and there's, I felt no redeeming qualities to it. Yeah. Then, then if you go like to the other end of like the archaeology TV spectrum, there is um Relic Hunter, uh, starring uh, Tia Carrere. Yeah. Um, uh, and that that lasted for like a number of seasons. Uh, I want to say like, I want to say three seasons. I'm gonna check. Yeah, three seasons, sixty six episodes. Uh, and it was just about this like archaeology professor, and they filmed it at the university that I work at right now at U of T University. Oh of wow. Um, but again, it was like super sensationalistic. But it was cool to see like, oh, you know. It's a, you know, like basically the, the female Indiana Jones. And, you know, she she is of, you know, Asian descent. So I was like, I'm on board. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on board. Um, and she was like very, very competent. She was good at her job and the show was entertaining. Uh, but obviously, like sensationalized cultures, you could say bits of it are kind of uh, ethnocentric and. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of had um, primitive, uh, were a little bit uh, primitivistic. Uh-huh. Um, but it was still like better than Bone Kickers. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think we could do a whole episode on the History Channel. Yeah. That. Oh my God. We we should do that. Right. Yeah. We do a whole episode on the History Channel, and um, like ancient aliens, we could. Oh, yeah. We, we do whole episodes just talking about those, uh, that channel and that specific show. Yeah. Um, but but in my mind, one of the best shows about, like fictional shows about anthropology and archaeology, is Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah. 
It, it is 100% Star Trek The Next Generation, simply because Jean-Luc Picard, played by the you know amazing Patrick Stewart, yeah, uh, is, as a part of his backstory, and it's a big part of the narrative, too, he was trained as an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. And there are episodes where you know he's on an archaeological dig. Or there's actually an episode where there are these... Uh, uh, there's this alien race. I believe they were like on one of the moons of Vulcan. I- I'm not 100 percent sure. I forget. This was a uh-huh. long time ago. Um, but there's this uh, an alien race, and they were basically akin to us during the early stages of the agricultural revolution. Right. So they don't have warp technology, so they can't participate in the Federation. Um, but there's this outpost, and they're watching them, and the outpost is actually hidden by a cloaking device. Right. And they're watching because uh, they don't want to disrupt these cultures. Uh-huh. They don't want to accidentally influence them. Because that's like, the prime you know, directive. Because that's the prime directive. But in the episode, the cloaking field goes down. And these people are actually exposed to this new technology. And that was the, you know, the story of that episode. And so, so I thought that you know, Star Trek was really good because you know, even though things were all science – it was it's very science fiction, it, you know, it portrayed – you know the understanding of cultures in a positive way. You know, to you know it, it portrayed the respect of cultures, so cultural right. relativism. It, prevai- it portrayed archaeologists as academics rather than you know fighters. Yeah, and it portrayed that sort of spirit of curiosity and exploration. Yeah, that's really good. And they kind of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they kind of rehash that idea of like cultural relativism and the prime directive in one of the more recent uh, Star Trek movies where they, they like they're on some planet and something goes wrong and they're supposed to get out of there without leaving a trace and they end up leaving a trace and they're like, Oh man, we, we really screwed up. We influenced. Oh, I gotta, culture. I gotta look back. I, I haven't watched uh, Star Trek discovery yet, but I've heard really good things about it and it's been renewed for a second season. Um, I'm I'm hoping that it too has some really awesome archaeology or at least anthropology. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but several of my uh, archaeology friends uh, who are big Trekkies uh, are big fans of it, so I'll have to check it out at some point. I mean, a lot of us are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I w- I was always more of a Star Wars fan uh, than than Star Trek. Um, for yeah, Star Star Wars has a lot a lot less archaeology. But they do. Um, I, I still, I still, re- I mean, I'm, I'm also much more of a Star Star Wars fan. If you listen to like the latest episode of my show with uh, Jason Liu, we spent a good thirty minutes talking about you know, Asian representation in Star Wars. Yes, yeah, and his because his character, the the lizard man. Yeah, the pitiful human lizard. He, uh, which is also a, a great comic. It's just really hard to find. Yeah, especially in the United States. So I'm so sorry. But if you're willing to pay the shipping, it's worth it. Especially if you want to learn about if you're an Asian American and you know you want to learn about Toronto uh, and you like superheroes, check out uh, my friend Jason Liu's uh, Pitiful Human Lizard. Nice. It's, it's just a good comic. It's just a good comic. Yeah. But we we didn't even get to talk about music. Yeah, so let's riff on music. Uh well, no pun intended. I, so I've I've been thinking about this and I honestly I have I have maybe two musical memories I can think about, I can recall, related to archaeology. The, the first one was um, we were – I was working in Jordan, 
and we were backfilling a section of the site that I was working on. Uh-huh. And one of the one of the dudes working on the site started singing these old these like these really old like 200-year-old like songs from oh, like wow. prospector songs or whatever. Yeah. And he was singing these songs trying to get everybody to sing the songs and I just remember being like really physically exhausted and being like oh, I don't want to sing stop forcing me to sing. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, and then there's my most recent trip to China where I was in the pit on my own for the most part. And all I wanted to do was listen to music. And all I wanted to do was listen to podcasts. And I couldn't because, you know, my supervisor and all of our other colleagues were basically watching me work. Yeah. And so for me, it's like archaeology is always associated, at least field work is always associated with me wanting to listen to something. Yeah. But never being able to. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Music is a, a really big part of excavations. I, I think probably less so for survey work, just because you've you kind of got to be a, a little bit more alert. But um, yeah, like most of the digs that I'm on, there's there's usually some kind of a like portable Bluetooth speaker uh, somewhere near the, the excavation unit. And, you know, if if it's uh a good group dynamic usually people are pretty chill about who gets to play dj but um you know that we end up sharing a lot of a lot of music I've, I've learned a lot of uh learned about a lot of music through that and uh you know like with with all my time spent working in belize uh reggae and reggaeton is really big and when i first you know when i first started going down there i actually hated reggae and i i hated reggaeton i thought it was obnoxious and now i'm like it holds a very special place in my heart. Like I, I listen to a lot of it and it's one of those things. It's, it's just really funny. Like I'm, I'm just like, like, you know, for a long time I was, I was living in Kentucky and people would laugh cause it's like, Oh, it's just some white guy in Kentucky listening to reggae. And it's like, well, you know, I, I've spent enough time now around people who like, that is their music that, uh, you know, I just pick it up and it, you know, I have a lot of positive memories associated with it. So, you know, it just makes me happy to listen to it. Um, but yeah. Huh. Uh, okay, I didn't think that's what you were gonna say. Okay. Oh well, I've got. Then I a... definitely could talk more about music. I yeah. definitely talk more about music. I was like, are we gonna talk about like songs that talk about archaeology? I mean, like, I've got a little bit Portland of that. But let's let's hear Chris your side. from Portland, and he's and he's like super hip, and <laughs> Portland. So I'm sure there's something. Not to stereotype P Portland, but I saw this amazing documentary called Portlandia, and <laughs> which is a hundred percent real. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, eh? <laughs> no, I definitely um, have some of that. But um, let's, yeah, let's let's hear where where you're going. Because I that. I have none of that. But for for me, then okay. So I have I really really when I was working in Jordan, I did three three seasons in Jordan. And I developed like a deep appreciation for, you know, the Arabic language in music. I, I haven't I don't understand it. Like I, I used to be able to just speak a tiny little bit. Yeah. But I don't understand it. But I think it's it's a, a really beautiful and elegant language. But most recently, uh, working in China, um, I came to really like Chinese music. I still really don't like Chinese operatic music. Uh -huh. um, it's something that I don't have a, an ear for. Yeah. But when I was, uh, you know, so for your listeners who have never heard me on your show, and shame on you if you haven't. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm a 
<laughs> I, I'm a Chinese Canadian. I was born in Toronto and I was raised in Toronto. Uh, and I didn't go to China or really reconnect with my culture until I got involved in archaeology. Um, so uh, like I said on the, the, the sort of the clip show that you did, it, it was kind of a way for me to get in touch with my own culture. And one of the things that I got in touch with was, was music. When I was trying to learn how to speak Chinese, when I was taking night school, learning how to speak Chinese, I would actually listen to a lot of uh, Mando pop, so so Mandarin pop music, uh-huh. to try to try to learn tone and kind of familiarize myself with the pop culture. Yeah. And so I got really into Mando pop, and I got really really into listening to Jackie Chan's music. <laughs> I didn't realize he made music. That's awesome. Yo, he's got like twenty albums. <laughs> I gotta check that out. That's awesome. But yeah, he, that's cool because I was. He did like he did like some of the the music for um, uh, for Mulan, the uh, the Chinese release of Mulan. Yeah, he he sang the song um, uh, "I'll Make a Man Out of You." In, oh wow! But he sang it in in Cantonese. Uh, he's actually a legit singer. I mean, he was trained uh, at an opera academy, so he was trained in like comedy and acting and singing and physical comedy. Um, so he's like a really well-rounded dude. Yeah. So when I was, you know, traveling to China and, you know, trying to psych myself up for this trip, cause I'd never been before. I was listening to a lot of Chinese music. So I got into like listening to Jackie Chan's music because, you know, I'm a big fan of his movies. And then I got really into, um, uh, listening to this one singer named Wang Li Hong. And he, he is actually interesting because just like Daniel Wu, he was actually born in the U.S., but found success in Asia. Um, he found success in Asia because obviously at the time, you know, having success in North America as an Asian singer is really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, just trying to think of them now, I have a hard time. I think like Bruno Mars, he, he's part uh, Filipino. Um, obviously, Zayn Malik. Uh-huh. Uh, of One Direction and now all of his amazing solo stuff. Um, and uh, obviously, like, the guys of Linkin Park. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, like, Linkin Park was really big for me growing up because uh, for the genres of music that I liked, Linkin Park was the only group that had an Asian presence uh-huh. in, in my teen years. I would actually see, like, oh, my God, Mike Shinoda and, like, Joe Hahn from Linkin Park. They're both Asian guys, and they're making this awesome music that everybody loves. And it's like, oh, my God, those are some, like, really cool Asian dudes. Yeah. And so Linkin Park is really important to me. And actually, uh, not yesterday, but the the day before, they actually did this big uh, three-hour concert, uh, like a charity concert for uh, Chester Bennington, the lead singer. He uh, he took his own life yeah. uh, in, in the summer. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, for me, you know, Music and archaeology are, are the link between the two are really just like music and me trying to learn more about my heritage and you know having and seeing Asians you know represent me not as like Daniel Kwan but me as you know an Asian guy yeah. in media. That's really interesting, and I, I think that that's important that that music has that ability, uh, you know, and really pop culture as as a whole has that ability. So. You know, here we are, and and like you had mentioned earlier, we we could spend you know entire episodes exploring all the various directions that, you know, just just that can go. Yeah, and that's that's why we do these back and forth episodes. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. 
Well, I can't believe it's been two years since uh, the album Luminiferous by High on Fire came out. It's It was one of my all-time favorite albums when it came out, and High on Fire is one of my all-time favorite bands. And I, I don't even know them. They're this uh, like stoner doom metal band from Bay Area, okay. California, and they've been around for uh, over 20 years. They're a spinoff of another um, pretty influential uh, doom metal band, called sleep uh, and matt pike is the the singer and guitarist and uh he's been he he gets a lot of of good press um, because he's a he's a very talented guitar player uh, and he's got a very distinctive like very gravelly low voice um and so okay um yeah if you're into aggressive music like that it's it's pretty good but luminiferous was uh, an interesting one and so like they're they're one of my all-time favorite bands and just as like a quick a quick note, you know, to back to, you know, getting into music uh, through archaeology. I was doing an archaeology survey one year. Uh, I guess it was, it had to have been one of my first ones. So it would have been like a decade ago. And I was listening to, um, you know, some music that a friend of mine had put together. Uh, and and I, you know, downloaded it before I, I hit the road and, and went off on this project. And then I started listening to it. And I was listening to uh, some High on Fire and, you know, it was like I, I had like heard about them and, and stuff like that, but I wasn't like super big into them. And then it, it was just one of those moments where it clicked kind of like uh, I was listening to like your podcast when I was on survey and it clicked and I was like, hell yeah, that's awesome. So I ended oh. up getting super into it. And um, but anyway, two years ago, Luminiferous came out. And I was floored when I read this interview with Matt Pike, their singer and guitarist, who full on believes that aliens have been among humans since ancient Samaria. No fucking way. Yeah, I mean, like sorry. full no on, way. <laughs> full on, no irony. He's a he's he's a conspiracy theorist of uh, ancient aliens, um, and he's oh also he's all so if if you listen to enough of the the songs. Uh, you can kind of pick up on that vibe that he's very, very interested in ancient cultures and, and like, especially kind of the, the darker elements of, of ancient cultures and how they shape uh, the current world. And so that was one of those things that I immediately latched onto as an archeologist. Cause I was like, Oh, that's really cool. He, he's really, really obsessed with, with ancient things. And, um, but he's also, if you listen to enough of the songs, you, you can pick up that there's, there's some really, really uh, out there ideas that, that he's uh, really into. And, you know, at first I thought that, you know, oh, maybe that's just one of those like cheesy elements of, of, of metal because metal does tend to explore, you know, some kind of cheesy themes like that. But uh, no, he's he's a full on believer in like reptile people as well. If you're familiar with that uh, conspiracy yep. theory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. But yeah, stoner and doom metal are subgenres of, of metal that are just rife with references to ancient cultures and some pseudo archaeological okay. claims to the occult. And uh, some of my favorite bands in that style, like uh, the sword or electric wizard, uh, they often make some really cheesy references to either real or imaginary ancient material culture. Uh, and they relate them to themes of power and violence and life experience in real world settings. And, you know, they're sometimes they, they talk about like, uh, a very powerful artifact or something like that. Um, 
So there's oh, a okay, cool. Yeah, and then uh, you know, to get away from metal, there's there's a f- a few passing references in a few Modest Mouse songs to archaeology, um, and I I can't find the link to the interview, but uh, their singer uh, Isaac Brock apparently studied anthropology in school. Uh, bef- oh, cool. Yeah, and that but he didn't end up graduating with that. He ended up leaving with uh, an associate's degree, and then. Uh, there's also a song by Damian Marley, the son of Bob Marley, and I I'd mentioned that I'm a I'm a big fan of reggae. Um, yeah. But uh, Damian Marley and Nas did a song called Patience that refers. Uh, they make several references to ancient culture and oral traditional knowledge and archaeologists and Indiana Jones and. Uh, they also make a call against the hangovers of colonialism, uh, which is that it's a big theme in reggae as, as it is, you know, it's, um, with Rastafarianism and all that. And it's, that's a recurring theme. You know, they make frequent references to Babylon, but Babylon is a, uh, it's like a metaphor for the, the, um, culture and power. And so that's, that's like the, the major Western powers of, of the world is Babylon, and so they talk about the fall of Babylon in reggae a lot, and that's, you know, kind of calling for the doom of, of America, um, which is kind of cool. I don't know. It's, uh, uh. yeah. Um, okay, so I I totally have something to vibe off of you then. Yeah. I didn't think I would, because I'm like, ah, I don't know. Uh, every single podcast that I do uh, and we with somebody and we talk about music, I always come off with, like, great albums. So, like, Luminiferous. I'm 100% gonna try to find and listen to uh-huh. the one of a previous guest I I had uh, Jason Anarchy. He's a board game designer. Got me really into this uh, this punk band called No FX. Yeah, yeah. I was super into them growing up. Yeah. Now I'm like super into them. But speaking of musicians who are into conspiracy theories, <laughs> so my <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going there. <laughs> yes. So my. Uh, one of my, 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 I would say one of my favorite podcasts and definitely one of my favorite podcasters, aside from you, of course, um, <laughs> uh, Joe Rogan yeah, uh, on his show on episode 1029 of his show, uh, he had Tom DeLonge on now, uh, Tom DeLonge is, was the uh, former lead singer of Blink-182. Yeah. And it's the most uncomfortable podcast episode I have ever seen. Yeah, because so, he is into some really crackpot ideas, super crackpot alien alien stuff. Yeah. So he was on, and when I saw that he was going to be on, I was like, "Oh man, they're going to talk about Blink and all that." Because I, uh, uh, I saw that you know, um, Mark Hoppus was like, "Yeah, we're going to do uh, we're going to do the the Lincoln Park thing," and I was like, "Oh, maybe Tom like Tom's going to talk about Lincoln Park and talk about like old school Blink One Eighty Two because I really liked Blink One Eighty Two when I was younger." Um, and he went on to talk about this startup that he is the CEO of called to the stars. Uh, it's like to the stars Academy of arts and science. And it's just like, the interview was so uncomfortable. And he's like, yeah, on our, you know, on our team, we have scientists, aerospace engineers, and they want to basically crowdfund a spaceship. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Why? It's it's like uh, this public benefit corporation, and they want to uh, crowdfund a spaceship. So because the government's lying to you, and he would talk about how like you know these these alien he knows that these aliens are real, and he knows that the government's hiding things. Um, and then Joe on the podcast would be like, "Well, why?" And he'd be like, oh, "I can't tell you. I can't tell you. It's classified." 
and then and then all the within i i couldn't even finish the episode i have listened to nearly every episode of joe rogan's podcast um and I've learned a lot from it about podcasting and, and you know, just about things I never would have thought I'd read or listen to. And within the first 16 minutes, 15, 15 to 20 minutes, I'll, I'll say 16 because I don't know why I said that random number. Um, he was t- Tom was talking about how he got this email from the Department of Defense saying to come to the Department of Defense. They have something for you. <laughs> and he's like, and so he talks about getting an email from the Department of Defense. And then flying to go meet with them to talk about aliens. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, man, that rock star life really did a number on you. Yeah. Oh, man. That's yeah, a bummer. Yeah, but then it's a bummer. Like, if if you're a Blink-182 fan, like, don't listen to that episode. But if you're looking for, like, a laugh or something really cringeworthy, watch it on YouTube. Don't listen to it. Watch it on YouTube. On, uh, <laughs> Joe Rogan's channel. It's a powerful JRE. Um, man, it, it was brutal. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check I, that out. Yeah, they produced like a documentary and a book already. I just, I really hope it's like a, a big hoax or they're trying to troll everybody. But he's, he seems dead serious. He seems dead serious. Wow. Uh, yeah, what a bummer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> So we we got on this little tangent on conspiracy theories regarding uh you know like cultures and stuff like that and th- it just reminded me of this this time I was uh, doing an excavation and I had a backhoe operator uh with me to you know we were doing some exploratory trenches and uh, we were using a backhoe to do it and so um so I'm you know we're we're working together with this backhoe operator and uh you know like one of the one of the guys was like super super knowledgeable of archaeology and you know he had he had worked you know doing some backhoe projects for archaeologists before and he apparently studied archaeology in school uh before going on to that and so like we were having some conversations and so the other guy though um you know definitely didn't have that kind of background and so I'm I'm down in the bottom of this trench and I'm I'm like drawing out the soil profile and uh we we were finding some stone tools down there and he goes so how old how old do you think that is and you know I I just told him you know well it could be between such and such date and such and such date but you know I'd, I'd say it's probably around 5000 years old and he goes how can that be and I was oh. like I was like well and so I started explaining again, like, well, we're talking about soil stratigraphy and like um, type morphology of, of this this stone tool. You know, we know that it's probably, you know, some kind of like middle to late archaic or whatever. And uh, he goes, well, the the date though, uh, how how do you come up with that date? And so I'm I'm like, how many times do I have to repeat this, man? And so I'm I'm just kind of like stealing around. And I go, well, what do you mean? Like I, I already explained to you, and he goes, "Well, the Earth is only two thousand years old." And I go, two thousand? What? <laughs> oh no!" And so, flat Earth, young Earth, young Earther. Yeah, he super young Earther though. Like I, I oh think that God. the the accepted young Earth is, uh, like, is like six thousand. I thought it was six or five. Yeah. Yeah, and so when when he came back with 2000 and started spouting the the young earth theory i was like oh no 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 no, no, no. and so he he's like well 
you know, because because Jesus was around two thousand years ago, and I go, "Do you believe Jesus oh, created oh. the earth?" And he goes, "Well, well, yeah." And I was like, "Well, oh, no." So so you know how how Jesus was like persecuted by by the Romans, right? And and eventually killed by them. And he goes, "Well, yeah." And I go, "So where did the Romans come from?" Like they had a civilization that was fully in place. Like that civilization took a long time to form, right? And oh, no. so it's just like you could you could just see like his his coworker who knew something about archaeology was just like he was just cringing, like it was just awkward, and like you could just see that the guy's brain was melting as we're like calmly explaining, like well, you know, there were civilizations in place, and you know this this holy figure of of you know. <laughs> supposedly created the entire earth you know just like pops into a fully in place civilization like these things take time oh, buddy no. oh no yeah it was super awkward oh my god that sounds so awkward actually this um this brings up this is really good book that i read a long time ago ironically i bought it in the south um i bought it in <laughs> texas what are you doing buying books in the south <laughs> it was in Austin, so it's like oh, nice. So yeah. it's like Portland of the South. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I bought this. I bought. I, I don't know which one. I know you guys have that beef. Portland and Austin have some beef. I uh, love Austin. Came, I, I no, I'm like, sure that some people do. Keep, keep Portland weird or the keep Austin weird. Who went first? Who came first? Oh, I have no idea. Whoever started it though, um, ended up making it into like a. Uh, I don't know, some kind of like a. They make money off of it for for whatever. Oh it god, is. that sucks. And, and so now now there's keep Louisville weird, and you know there's there's other places too that are they're like it's like keep Charlotte, North Carolina weird, and it's just like yeah, come on. Okay, now it's like a trend. Yeah, is is it really that weird if it's a chain? Uh, okay, okay, but well, yeah, uh, <laughs> Austin's well, I was cool in, though. <laughs> I was in Austin, and they have some amazing used bookstores, and I bought this amazing book called Among the Creationists. Oh, um, yeah. So it's among the creationist uh, dispatches from the anti-evolutionist frontline. And there it's written by this this guy named Jason um, Rosenhaus, and he's a mathematician. So he became really, really fascinated by creationists. He wasn't a believer, but he would attend these creationist conferences and he wrote a book about his experiences talking to people. And then then he would kind of debunk them using mathematics. It's a super good book. I don't know wow. where my copy went, but I highly recommend it. Just based on what you just told me, yeah. highly recommend that to your audience. It's written in a, it's written really well. I knew very little about creationism until I read that book, and it kind of blew my mind. It was a great book. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, highly recommend it. So it's Among the Creationists by Jason Rosenhaus. So check it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have all that in the uh, show notes. Well, yeah. yeah. I I think that we've uh we've covered a lot for for this one. So This is also our longest episode ever. I believe so. Yeah. It's definitely the longest I've done. Um Is this the longest episode of Go Dig a Hole? Yeah, I believe so. You're you're setting a new record. Oh man. <laughs> oh man. That uh that secret podcast um that uh, I'll tell you about when we're when we're off air. Off air? Um we're plan we're planning on 3-hour episodes. Oh my god. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about it. After. That's gonna be, that's gonna be great for my next drive to San Francisco. Uh, so like, <laughs> last week, uh, 
<laughs> last week I, I spent all week in San Francisco and, and, and it was great. And that's, that's when I picked up, uh, the, the episode before this one, uh, I visited yeah. UC Berkeley. Allison O'Toole. Yeah. Oh, the, this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I picked up uh, an, an interview with Bill White at UC Berkeley, and, and that was a lot of fun. But I did a lot of uh, podcast and audiobook listening, so I'm definitely uh, always taking suggestions because I think I'm going to be making that drive uh, fairly regularly, which kind of sucks but it's uh it's good to get some good co-working done down there that's good for work yeah but yeah thank you so much for your time on uh this episode and i'm i'm yeah you no know worries dude always fun uh catching up with you and talking so uh you know uh everybody listening to go dig a hole like i said before go listen to curiosity and focus um you know we we frequently collaborate so uh there's going to be a lot of crossover yeah, yeah. If you want to, you know, stay curious with me, uh, just head to uh, Patreon, Instagram, and Facebook at Curiosity and Focus. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Daniel H. Kwan. And this will all be in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, i've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students teachers whatever uh, you can also find me online i'm very online uh, the blog is go dig a hole.com uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at go dig a hole